Hey there, I'm so excited to tell you about Radiotopia's newest show, The Recipe with Kenji and Deb. Kenji and Deb are two of the best home cooks alive. J. Kenji Lopez-Alt of The Food Lab and The Walk, and Deb Perlman of Smitten Kitchen. Two of my go-tos to make sure I'm getting the perfect recipe for everything from meatballs to muffins. They're pros who obsess over techniques and essential ingredients, so you learn everything you need to create your perfect recipe. You can finally be excited to eat what you make, and maybe even impress your friends and family. Help us welcome the newest show to the Radiotopia family. Find The Recipe with Kenji and Deb on your favorite podcast platform starting February 26th. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to this day in esoteric political history from Radiotopia. My name is Jody Avergan. This day, July 28, 1974, the House Judiciary Committee voted 27 to 11 to recommend the impeachment of President Nixon on a charge that he personally engaged in, quote, a course of conduct designed to obstruct justice in the Watergate case. In the next few days, they would vote to recommend several other articles of impeachment, abuse of power, contempt of Congress. I will point out that this official inquiry started way back in February, and of course, the larger Watergate scandal had been brewing and building for years, but this vote was, in many ways, the beginning of the end for Nixon. He'd lost the support of Congress. He resigned a few weeks later. Uh, There were some twists and turns still to to happen along the way, and we'll get into those. I will say this kind of caught me off guard, but this is the first time that we're talking about Watergate on this show, so let's do it with uh, Nikki Hemmer, as always, from Columbia. Nikki, Watergate, first time. Yeah, it's actually really surprising as somebody um, (laughs) who, like Leon, has spent a lot of time in Watergate country. It is surprising to me that we haven't haven't done a lot of chatting. Yeah. And that Leon is Leon Nafak, host of Fiasco podcast and also the host of the first two seasons of Slow Burn. And of course, the first season of Slow Burn was a long look at Watergate, the twists and turns and everything in between. So Leon, welcome back to the show and thanks for doing this. Thanks, Jody. Happy to be here. Yeah, well, as you were saying, Jody, um, this is a story that goes back way before this vote. In fact, you know, much of the summer of 1973 was spent with people glued to their televisions watching these Watergate hearings. This is something, Leon, that comes up in in your show, that there are all these people just watching along. How big of a, a media phenomenon were these hearings? Yeah, people were obsessed with them. It was the thing that was on TV instead of the soap operas. And people, I think, just got really invested in some of the characters, like Sam Irvin, the the, the chair, who was the sort of conscience of the country as this ugly thing was being explored and, and sort of excavated in public. Sam Irvin kind of became this folk hero. And I think just people wanted to know the answer. Like, this is my modest theory about Watergate, was that, like, the kind of march towards the, its resolution was fueled by curiosity. Like, everyone just wanted to know mm-hmm. what had happened. And the more Nixon, you know, hid stuff and tried to fight Congress on, on what he was disclosing and what recordings and what transcripts he was releasing, like, the more he tried to conceal, the more people wanted to know. And that's, like, a very powerful force. So I'll frame this question to you then along those lines. You know, this vote, 27 to 11, to recommend impeachment, what question is that answering for people? Give us some context for this particular vote, what it meant, how big of a a moment it was, and kind of what what it set the stage for. 
Yeah. So it followed, you know, months of investigation on the part of the House Judiciary Committee. This was an inquiry that was funded to the tune of like a million dollars. And actually, that was the first like concrete step that Congress took towards impeachment was allocating a million dollars to staff an impeachment inquiry, mm-hmm. which I which I only mentioned because I it, it's like reassuring to me to think of it in such concrete terms like they needed to hire lawyers and investigators to like figure out what happened and they needed money for that. And that's the process. And so they spent months pouring through all the evidence, including, you know, transcripts of the White House tapes that that Nixon had been forced to hand over. And the House Judiciary Committee included some liberals, included it included some conservatives who were absolutely dead set on you know voting against impeachment. They were Nixon loyalists. And then there were also these sort of more ambivalent members of the committee who maybe they were kind of conservative Democrats who came from districts where Nixon was really popular, or maybe they were moderate Republicans who came from districts where people were a little bit split on whether Nixon deserved to be impeached. And they were like in a really tough spot in terms of their constituents. Um, and so they be, kind of became known like retroactively as these as this block of ambivalent people who were spending these months leading up to the vote we're talking about thinking this through and trying to figure out right. what they what they were going to do but what's most interesting to me is that they didn't really know about each other you know they they ended up as i said like eventually became called the fragile coalition but that was only after they realized that they were a coalition and for a while they were just sort of individually reckoning with this and uh, I don't know I find that very moving almost because the, the standard that Peter Rodino was setting for this exercise was that it had to be bipartisan, that he didn't think it would be taken seriously if it was a purely party line vote. Uh, And so these ambivalent seven, I think it was seven, ended up being absolutely key to that being the case. Yeah, I think this is a really important part of that 27 to 11 vote. I think it was actually six Republicans who finally side with the the Democrats and vote for this impeachment. And so it's a very clarifying moment in a way, because we tend to think of Watergate as kind of an open and shut case in retrospect in a way like everybody got that this was a really bad thing that was happening but Nixon had a lot of supporters and he had a lot of supporters in the Republican Party and a lot of people who supported Nixon conservatives and Republicans were saying that this was just a a democratic witch hunt and that they were just trying to overturn the 1972 election, which Nixon had won in a landslide. And what you see in this moment is Republicans crossing that line and saying, yes, there's something here that is impeachment worthy. Yeah. And I've had a lot of time to think about like, what was it people responded to about Sloburn so much? And I think part of it was like, hearing Republicans during Watergate sound like Republicans during the Mueller uh, investigation, where they were clearly just not interested in what really happened. They were interested in rhetoric and trying to defend Nixon against his enemies. And I think part of why that was sort of fresh or why that felt revelatory was that we all kind of think of Watergate as a different kind of era where there, where people were interested in fighting, you know, mm-hmm. in in bipartisanship, and they were in the end. And ultimately, it was bipartisan in, in many ways, but it but it didn't start there. Like, and, yeah. and I think what's shocking is like, or what shouldn't be shocking is that the impulse to be a loyalist is always going to be there. And so I think Watergate can just be both. It can be both a reminder that we've never been better than we are now, but also that we can be. Leon, I'm curious, kind of how much this vote really does set the stage for resignation. I mean, you know, you look at the timeline and it's just these, this vote happens and the subsequent votes and, you know, what is it, eight days later, Nixon gives his speech announcing that he's, that he's going to step down. So is it the case that he sees these votes and he starts, re- you know, penning his uh, resignation speech? I mean, it certainly wasn't 
good. I mean, but I, but I think it's, <laughs> it's a hot it's, take. It's, 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 <laughs> it, it is definitely like hard to disentangle cause and effect when you look at this period because it, there are a lot of things happening at the same time, and it's important to realize that as the committee is going through this process, you know, a different branch of government is dealing with. Nixon on another front, which is that he has been refusing to release tapes that the special prosecutor had requested. And this refusal ends up going to the Supreme Court where Nixon loses. And on an 8-0 ruling, he is forced to hand over this cache of material that he had previously been holding back. And as soon as that happens, he, I think that's, that's really when he knows that it's over because he knows that among the material that he's not been handing over is something really, really damning, which is, you know, a conversation he had, I believe, with H.R. Haldeman, where he basically says almost immediately after the burglary, like, let's sandbag this, basically. And it contradicts everything he's been saying about how he wasn't, you know, involved in the cover-up. And I think it's it's the combination of that Supreme Court vote and Nixon's need to then inform members of Congress that, that this tape is going to come out that really destroys him. And I think you could see this even in among the members of the, of the House Judiciary Committee that had voted on, on impeachment. Charles Wiggins is a great example. Like he was adamantly against impeachment. He had he'd made a comment during public hearings about how these liberals would impeach Nixon for spitting on the street or something like that. And as soon as he is informed of this smoking gun tape, he goes on TV and, and in tears says, like, I, I'm afraid that the great Richard Nixon's political career is over. And that's not an exact quote, but it, it changes his mind, or at least it forces his hand. And so again, it's like this combination of events happening at the same time that really create the pressure that I think ultimately convinced Nixon that there was no there was no fighting this. Yeah, I mean, think of it as a, a series of firewalls that Nixon had erected to protect himself and his hold on office. And a lot of them had to do with these tapes, right? Once the taping system was known, his days were numbered. But he was doing all kinds of things to make sure that nobody ever got that smoking gun tape. He issued transcripts, but he had like a guy who's hard of hearing do the transcripts. <laughs> um, they held back tapes. They left things out of those transcripts. What he knew he had to do was make sure that nobody ever heard his voice giving that order. And when that smoking gun tape surfaces and when he realizes that people are going to hear it, he knows that he's losing all of these firewalls. And the last firewall was Republicans in the Senate. Barry Goldwater, a very conservative Republican senator and other Republicans in the Senate come to Nixon and they're like, you don't have the numbers anymore. And that's the point at which he's like, my last firewall is gone. I can either get kicked out or I can resign. But but let me ask you, um, or either of you, about that that point of, you said, you don't have the numbers anymore. Is that, there's a preponderance of evidence that has led me to to really start to believe that you are guilty of what you're being accused of? Or is it more like, you don't have the numbers anymore, as in, like, politically, this is getting untenable for me to continue to support you? My and obviously those are related. My impression was that, like, the revelation of the smoking gun tape, where Nixon could be heard giving the, the order... I, I think that convinced people like Goldwater that there was no way to defend this. Yeah, I mean, that's right. And impeachment is always about politics. It's always political, right? You need to have a certain number of senators say this is no longer tenable. And that's what the smoking gun tape does. It's, it, they know they're not going to get support from their constituents. It's too high of a price for them to pay to continue to support Nixon. And principles come into play too, but politics is always always in play here. And, and I think it's important to also say that like, you know, the vote we're talking about that happened on this day, that was just like, uh, Jody, as you said, step one on a long process. Like what had to happen next was that the House Judiciary Committee had to convince the rest of the House to vote to impeach. And that was, there was a question as to like whether the Republicans in the House would go along with it. And after that, they'd have to go to the Senate and there'd be a trial, as we now know. And the Republicans, in order 
for that to go anywhere would have to go along with it. And I think the smoking gun tape was necessary to kind of give teeth to the threat implied by the House Judiciary Committee vote, right? Like now this vote to impeach uh, or a vote to recommend impeachment to the broader House now, that was dangerous to Nixon suddenly. Whereas before, if all these Republicans were, were willing to continue defending him, it was going to be symbolic at best. So we can start to wrap up here. I want to I want to just flag one interesting thing that I noticed, which is, you know, you look we're talking about July 27th and 28th. That, those two days I noticed were a weekend. And I just want to point out, you know, that like there was a time, I guess, during, um, you know, really important crisis moments of crises where our, our elected officials went and, and worked on the weekend, uh, <laughs> even months and months or years and years into this. Uh, they I guess they felt this was important enough to be there. Um, Took it really seriously. I mean, they, they, they you know, I, the thing I was most struck by in talking to like Elizabeth Holt who was a young, you know, member of the committee at the time was that, you know, even as a liberal who presumably didn't want Nixon to be in office, like she, she took it really hard. And I don't know, maybe that's just like BS, like that's what a politician says. But I find myself very persuaded when she was kind of describing herself during that months long process of, of learning the facts of the case. She was just like, it felt like being in quicksand, like these guys just like didn't quit being manipulative and craven. And just like there was never a moment during these tapes when Nixon would say, but what is the right thing to do? It was always, what can we get away with? And she just really felt like she, she, she took it hard. And to your point, Peter Rodino, the chairman, like a liberal, wept after this, after the vote was taken. And I think that's not just PR. I think impeachment meant something different at this time than it does now. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there is just such a stark contrast between this and the next impeachment. Like, this is something where they're following regular order, they're going through this for years and years and years. By the time of the Clinton impeachment, which is the second season of Slow Burn, um, the approach is, let's say, very different. All right, let's start to wrap up. You want to do, Nikki, a couple uh, also on this days? Yeah, let's do it. In 1868, U.S. Secretary of State William H. Seward, who we weirdly keep talking about. He was... We've talked about him more than we've talked about Richard Nixon. <laughs> <laughs> um, Seward of Seward's Folly. Seward, um, who was almost offed in the coup when Lincoln was assassinated. He announces the 14th Amendment ratified by the states, which grants citizenship to all black Americans. Black Americans had been stripped of the right to citizenship back in 1857, and the 14th Amendment puts that back in place. And I will flag that in 2017, a couple years ago, this was the date in which um, skinny repeal of Obamacare fell, uh, 5149, when John McCain cast his deciding vote against it. A very memorable thumbs down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very memorable thumbs down. I don't know how much we re- else do either of you remember two years ago? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I remember, either of you remember one day ago? I will say, in its defense, it was actually three years ago. Oh, sorry. Whoops. Wow. That's, that, that shows you how much time is, uh, uh, yeah, is catching up with it. No, I will say I remember in part because I, I think I was in, in Boise, Idaho at a, uh, at a, at a festival where we were doing a live 538 show. But I will also say like, that was a big moment. And that was a moment that hurt Donald Trump. And I think like, as we start to, you know, I think this is a, a, something we, we kind of do a fair amount. It's to sort of like, make a list of the things that tend to, that seem to, actually hurt Trump and the things that, that, that don't. And I would say that the, you know, spending a lot of political capital going back after Obamacare was genuinely one of those things that I think dinged this president. Mm-hmm. All right. That brings us to the end of the show. Nicole Hemmer, thank you as always. Thank you. And Leon Nafak, thanks to you. Thank you. 
Leon will be back for another episode. We said we were going to do a, a busting episode at some point down the line, so we will do that with Leon again, and the new season of Fiasco is coming out. Uh, Leon, when's it When's it coming out? It is coming out August 13th. That's the, Great. the first, first episode. Okay, a few weeks from now, so keep your uh, ears out for that. Uh, this Day in Esoteric Political History is a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX. Our researcher and producer is Jacob Feldman. Follow us on social media. We're posting a bunch of stuff on Twitter and Instagram every day, posting about big moments and small moments, way more than we get to on this podcast so follow at this day pod you can also email us this day pod at gmail.com my name is jody abergan thanks again for listening and we'll see you soon It is, as you may have heard, an election year. But do you feel like you have a lot of choices? Here are the new candidates, same as the old candidates. How did we get here again? The fact is, our democracy is broken. We can all feel it, and there's data to back it up, too. A Princeton University study found that public opinion has near zero impact on what laws are passed. You know what does have an impact, though? Money! You can call it lobbying, you can call it super PAC spending, you can call it corruption. But luckily, there are things we can do right now to fix this broken system. This podcast is part of the Pro-Democracy Podcast Coalition, a group that's banding together to make our democracy better. We're working with Represent Us, the largest grassroots organization fighting to end corruption city by city and state by state. You can join the movement too. Go to represent.us slash podcast to find out more. Radiotopia. Radiotopia.